Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne. Indonesian football experienced its darkest day on the 1st of October 2022 when more than 130 spectators were killed, including 35 children, after police fired tear gas into the crowd at the conclusion of a Liga 1 match in Kandruan Stadium in Malang, between local rivals Arema Malang and Persebaya Surabaya. Fans fleeing the tear gas, which police fired after some fans entered the playing field, were killed in the crush in stairwells and at exits that in some cases were locked or partially closed. Other football leagues around the world held a moment's silence in the wake of the tragedy as a mark of respect to the victims, and what was one of the worst football disasters globally in the history of the game. Within Indonesia, vigils have been held around the country for the fans who died at Kandruan. President Jokowi has asked a fact-finding team to deliver a report into the disaster within a month, and the country's professional leagues have been temporarily suspended. The Indonesian police decision to use tear gas has been almost universally criticised. How can we account for the police decision to use tear gas in a sold-out Kandruan stadium? And what investigations and accountability are likely after the death of so many fans? What also has the game day experience been like for football fans in Indonesia? And what will be required to ensure that the events of Kandruan can never be repeated? In the wake of this national tragedy, in this week's episode, I discuss these issues with Usman Hamid, Executive Director of Amnesty International Indonesia, and Yogi Setia Pamana, a PhD candidate at KITLV in the Netherlands and the author of a 2017 study into football fan groups and local politics in Malang. <laughs> Usman Hamid, thanks so much for joining us actually for the second time on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Uh, glad to see you again, talk to you again. Yeah, no, always a pleasure. And Yogi Setia Pamana, this is your first time on Talking Indonesia, but we're no less delighted to have you on the podcast as well. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you, Dave. No worries. I'm very happy to join with you all. Excellent. Now, could I start with you, Usman, and you know, the picture that's emerged in the days after this Kandruan stadium disaster is one of fans killed in a crush at exits, some of which appear to have been closed or only partially open after the police fired tear gas repeatedly into the crowd. Now, how would you account for the Indonesian police decision to use tear gas inside the stadium? I think it was excessive. And this is unfortunately the a long track record of excessive use of force by the police, including the misuse or the abuse of tear gas. Uh, tear gas has been considered as a non-lethal weapon in the past, but in recent times, it is considered more as a less lethal weapons. This is due to some cases where tear gas may cause fatal health consequences such as that. And I think it was excessive because uh, the police should have supposed should have been able to use other methods such as water cannons and so on. 
And it, there was no imminent threats to the life of the police. There was no imminent threats to the life of the players. So I didn't see any threatening circumstances where the police had to use a force, including water cannons or especially tear gas, which is banned or prohibited by the rules in, in FIFA. I mean, we have seen just in the day before we've recorded this podcast, the head of police in East Java being removed from his position. But prior to that, there'd only been three low-ranking police officers charged and some low-ranking police officers removed from their positions. Um, That seems like a scenario the police are trying to present of this being a mistake by low-ranking officers to use force or, or to use tear gas. Is that a plausible scenario to account for what happened inside the stadium? Yeah, I think having a low-ranking officer to be responsible or to be uh, held accountable is a general pattern in which the higher-ranking officers escape with impunity. And even it's rarely a case where high-ranking officers to be uh, held accountable for so many cases where the police had used excessive use of force. Amnesty International, you know, had recorded uh, a series of uh, excessive use of force, including one of the most fatal excessive use of force in 2020, where we collected, we verified hundreds of videos, and then we published at least 50 or 50 videos depicting more than 40 separate incidents of violence by Indonesian police during the protests against the job creation law or the omnibus law on job creation that occurred between 6 October and 10 of November in, in that year. And water cannons have been used against protesters in Papua in an excessive way. A tear gas had been used to silent protesters in 2019, uh, where students from across Indonesia, from across different universities, went down to the demonstration, uh, rejecting a number of law, including a law on anti-graph commission, a law on penal code, and so on. And there were a number of students who were shot to death, and no one responsible, no one being held accountable for what happened, let alone the high-ranking officers. There was only one case where we saw some level of accountability, which is the torture and illegal or ill ill treatment uh, and degrading treatments in the case of electoral violence back in 2019 in May. And it was about mobile brigade members committing torture and other ill treatment, inhuman treatment, degrading treatment to protesters without any considerations of proportionality, humanity principle, and accountability principle. and But the rest of many cases, I think in general, I haven't seen any, I think we haven't recorded any proper accountability where high-ranking officers to be held responsible for the excessive use of force. So, I mean, you have this institution with a, a history of, of a record of excessive use of force and little accountability. And, you know, the, the unit you mentioned there, the mobile brigade, or Bremob, of course, were one of the units who were tasked with security in Kanduruan Stadium back on the 1st of October. Nevertheless, I mean, the, the, the scrutiny after the match has been on this police use of tear gas. And for instance, we saw the head of the Indonesian Football Association saying in an interview with Tempo magazine that this was the first time that tear gas had ever been used inside a stadium. That doesn't actually seem to be correct. As far as I can see, there were 
at least two incidents earlier in September where tear gas was used either in a stadium in Siduajo near Surabaya in East Java or outside a stadium in, in Bogor. Are you aware also of those earlier incidents and, and why, I guess, why didn't those incidents set off alarm bells that something was, was amiss with security at, at football matches? First of all, I, I, I'm aware uh, about the two incidents and also about the misuse of tear gas inside the stadium or in relation to the football match. However, you know, there has been this assumption or preconception that in every chaotic situations of football match, the government had always been blaming the supporters of each football clubs. And the same goes for the last incident in Malang. You know, in the beginning, if, if we recall on the few days after or a day after the, the football match in Kanjuruhan, most of the government official, including top minister of legal uh, security and politics, Mahfoud MD, tend to blame, you know, the supporters. And the same goes for the chief of police in East Jaffa and also the chief of the, the head of the football association, Iwan Bule. And I think all of them blame the supporters. And this is what happens in the past. It is true that there were a number of incidents where supporters clashed with other supporters, but among supporters. However, I think we have to be uh, careful in, you know, in analyzing uh, each of the incident. And for the last incident, it wasn't about supporters creating or insult or invoking riots or invoking violence. It was the police who started creating a chaotic situation where they had used. Um, tear gas, not only to the supporters that they thought were, were about to create chaos or chaotic situation, but to the stadium where many supporters, thousands of supporters, were not doing anything against the law. So I think it was clearly no reason for the police to start using force, such as, the, as especially the, the tear gas. And I think the tear gas in the case of Malang, <clears throat> if I look at all the photos, uh, the, the evidence, it is quite fatal, chemical irritants. So there are at least two products of tear gas. Uh, number one, what we considered as CN, and the other one is CS. What had been used in Malang is the one categorized as CN. The CS tear gas products had a at least five times more dangerous than the one categorized as CN. And this is too technical, perhaps, but I think it can explain, it could explain better why the number of, of deaths were quite uh, significant, and not only because they were in panic trying to escape the exit where the exit gates were blocked or were still closed, or because of the, you know, uh, other factors, but also because of this misuse of the most dangerous, more dangerous type of, of tear gas. And I mean, that's a point that we've actually seen police headquarters seek to dispute over, over the past day, issuing a statement that tear gas in itself is not fatal. But obviously, that will be one point of dispute in investigations into this disaster. You know, there'll also be as you've alluded to there, just the simple other effects of firing tear gas at the crowd. And dwelling on this issue of tear gas for a second, I mean, the, the FIFA 
prohibition on its use in stadiums has obviously been a focal point of criticism of police actions at Kanjuruan. And yet we saw the Friday, uh, obviously the stadium disaster happened on Saturday, 1st of October. We saw the following Friday, President Joko Widodo relaying on social media that FIFA was not going to sanction Indonesia over the Kanjuruan disaster, that Indonesia would remain host of the under-20 World Cup in 2023. We've now subsequently seen the Minister for Sport announced that the head of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, will visit Indonesia on the 18th of October. Taking President Jokowi's account of his correspondence with FIFA at face value, that there would be no sanctions and that Indonesia will remain host of this World Cup, is that an adequate response from FIFA to what happened in Malang? I think not at all. It's too premature. I think they should have done proper investigation first, launch an investigation involving independent investigators in order to have a solid findings and also a conclusion to look for more proper recommendation. I think this misuse, this abuse of, of, of chemical irritant, such as the tear gas, is a very fatal mistake. Chemical irritants are designed to temporarily deter or disable an individual, you know, by producing a sensory irritation. But as I mentioned earlier, a number of chemicals are more dangerous than the others. The CS gas, which I mentioned earlier, for example, is, is up to five times more irritant than CN gas and has been developed in the USA and UK. I think it has to be investigated properly first by FIFA. I think... The joint investigation team set up by the top minister of law, political and security has not been publicly announced. The investigation report by the uh, National Human Rights Commission has not been announced in a full fashion. And the same goes with the one initiated by the Witness Protection Agency or LPSK. They also launched an investigation, especially focusing on supporters who were the witness of the incidents but had been chased by the police, had been intimidated by the police, had been somehow under pressure by the local police in order to block them from exposing abuses, from exposing what exactly happens. And so those official investigation initiatives outside of the Indonesian FIFA or Indonesian PSSE, the soccer associations, cannot be the sole basis for international FIFA to look at the situation and to conclude what happens in Kanjuruhan and then to respond to just, you know, by saying that, well, it's fine, you know, Indonesia will not be sanctioned. And I actually a bit cautious and also suspicious. <laughs> Is it an official response by FIFA by saying that Indonesia won't be sanctioned? So, why not saying, for example, we will, you know, do proper investigation. We will look at the investigation result by the Indonesian Soccer Association, FSSE, and then we will review the other report of investigation led by, by government and also led by National Human Rights Commission and as well as by the Witness Protection Agency. So by having a review to this various sources of investigation reports, then Viva can make a better judgment, a better response to the situation. By just saying that Indonesia won't be sanctioned in this early stage, it, it will just undermine the sense of 
emergency and the sense of crisis, especially given that there are hundreds of supporters who are still injured, who are now in remains in hospitals, uh, let alone the the supporters who were killed in that tragic incident. Sure, sure. And assuming Infantino does visit Indonesia on 18 October, no doubt that will be a moment to push for further and perhaps more constructive action from FIFA in seeking some accountability for this incident. And yeah, and um, I'll, I'll have more to ask you later in the episode about the way the Indonesian investigations into the incident are going. But perhaps I could bring in Yogi now, who, as I mentioned, has has written an article about football, fan culture and politics in Malang. But beyond that, I understand, Yogi, your wife is from Malang. You lived in Malang near Kanduruan Stadium. When you heard news of this disaster at Kanduruan, was there anything in your experiences of watching football matches at the stadium that would lead you to believe this might have been possible? It is why in the 3rd of October when I wake up in the morning, it's like it was struck a lot because we, uh, since since I married my wife in 2016, we frequently quite often to go to Kanjuruan Stadium, not only to watch the match, but also to just only bring our kids, our nephew, cousin, and then just only enjoy the public space there because they're kind of parked inside of the Kanjurhan uh, Stadium complex. So it's it's common to every family in the Sunday morning or Saturday go to uh, Kanjurhan Stadium. And then, so I just recall when there was a match in the, in the Kanjurhan Stadium. So every corner, every people in the, uh, every corner in Malang will cherish, will celebrate the match, they will convey. But there is, I, I didn't feel any harm situation when I see the convoy because when we talk about Aremania, when we talk about the football supporter, it's not only just only the youth, but also it's it's consists of wide range of supporters, not only from the youth, but also from the very old people, your grandmother, your grandfather, and then your uncle, and then coming to your cousin, your kids, and even toddler and babies. So I quite often to see those kind of people from that kind of category who came to the stadium to watch a football or just enjoy or just enjoy the, the the park. So when I heard the news about the tragic calamity, so it I I couldn't believe that because Kanjuruhan in my mind, Kanjuruhan in my um, memory just always just always good. <laughs> so it, it, it's a really beautiful memories with family, spend time with families, and then celebrate sharing enthusiasm together with other supporters. So I didn't feel the harmful situation when I go to the Kanjurat Stadium. I mean, you know, really tragically, of course, that, that sort of broad cross-section of spectators you're mentioning, including families and young children, is, is reflected in the death toll from the disaster where, where I think the, the latest figure is that 35 children were killed among the 131 people who, who died after police fired tear gas. I guess on that family, you know, the, 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 the presence of families in the crowd, uh, people you mentioned from, from youth to, to old people uh, routinely attending matches, um, 
we look back in the now at the media reportage of the couple of weeks before this fixture where Arema, the team from Malang, were playing Persebaya, a local rival from the capital east Java in Surabaya. You know, we see a request from the police in Malang to move the match from a nighttime kickoff to an afternoon kickoff for security reasons, um, which the league denied a request to reduce the capacity of the stadium to 38,000 from 42,000, which was also, I understand, denied. The Malang police chief in the media appealing to supporters not to believe hoaxes or spread provocation and a, and a statement from the organisers that supporters of Persebaya, the Surabaya team, were banned from travelling to the match or attending the match. Is that a normal lead-in to a match in Malang or, or in Indonesia in the first division? Yeah, uh at least based on the FIFA re- regulation on security. So it's like some of matches can be categorized as a high-risk matches, right? So when several matches who involve like long-standing or long history on rivalries like Persebaya and Malang or previously like Persib Bandung and Persis, Persija Jakarta. Yes, it's quite often to, we, we see that the uh, when for it, Example, when Persija Jakarta host Persib Bandung in Jakarta. So practically, no Persib fans will be allowed to come to the stadium or vice versa. So it's part of the mitigation from the uh, local authorities to mitigate the uh, violence that happens between those football supporters. Because we know that the, the rivalry is existing there. So yeah, uh, to give restriction to away supporters to come to the host football match, it's quite familiar. So we often to see that kind of strategy applied to, to to the matches who categorize as a high-risk matches. So not only to restrict or ban the uh, away football uh, supporters, but also like to creating or reserving empty uh, stadium sectors between dangerous spect- uh, spectator sectors or give the strict segregation of fans by uh, allocating sectors other than those indicated on the match ticket, like to, to enforce the uh, segregation between these supporters. So I think it's quite often to see this kind of policy. But the thing is, now if we talk about the policy from the local uh, authorities during the matches, the thing that absence here is about the existing of the steward. Right, so if if we see the football matches that uh, conduct in Indonesia, all of the matches is secured by the coercive actors like police or military. But we didn't see any like steward. So in the crowd control management that happens also in other football matches in the other country, it is common to use steward to securing the or, or, or to control the crowd. So the approach very different between the steward and the police. Uh, steward can be, they are more persuasive than the uh, police. So I think that's the thing that quite absence in the football matches in the uh, Indonesian context. Sure, sure. And um, I mean, in the absence of stewards at the stadium, we seem to have seen a fundamental disconnect between what police at the stadium were expecting fans to do once some of them entered the playing field on on Saturday night and what 
eyewitness testimony analysis of the institutions like the National Commission of Human Rights uh, suggested was actually happening prior to the police firing tear gas, where we heard even Usman saying earlier in this podcast that the police were not under imminent threat, the players were not under imminent threat. So, I mean, do you get a sense from your research of fan groups in Malang how you could have that disconnect between what police imagined was happening and what seemed to be happening in the stadium at the time? In the meantime, I don't have any accurate or precise answer to that question. But if we talk back further, if we talk about the Horizon D3 or the origin of the football supporter in Malang, uh, Aremania, we can see that they built the football uh, supporter organization, Aremania, in 1994 because they would like to distinguish with the fan club that previously built by or created by the authorities at the time is a police and soldier and Kolongan Karya, one political party that support the uh, new order regime at the time. And and the, the Arimania that created in 1994 would like to oppose this kind of link with the politics. So they would like to create fully independent football supporters that just only Uh, have interest on football so at that time they have like uh, they, they they don't want to have uh, any connection with the local uh, police or, or with the politician or with the military officer so I, I don't know whether that kind of sentiment still happen until today that they would like they, they, they have sentiment to have distance with the local actors like uh, police or military but i assume if we connect with the history i think this this kind of sentiment still exists there that's uh, a fascinating history because i mean you do see a pattern in indonesia of police seeking to develop relationships with all manner of kind of informal groups within society you know across the spectrum from mass organizations through to to gangs and the like uh, i guess interesting if a history in Malang meant that that fan groups and, and police were somewhat distant from each other. But I mean, again, it's a fascinating history where, where you said Aramania, the fan group for Arema emerged in opposition to a kind of regime-sponsored fan group that preceded it. How exactly are fan groups organized in Malang and what sort of people join them? A defining feature of the principle of the uh, Aremania, it's about their independence, their subculture, Yeah, the, the the thing that we can see strongly in Aremania is the rejection toward formal organizational structures or formal chairpersons. So Aremania is quite anarchy. So they don't want to be hierarchical organizations. So they don't have any formal leaders. So one legendary tagline or one principle that they hold until today is no leader, but just together. So this tagline, like it's like influence their paradigm on how they should connect with each other, how they should connect as a association of football supporters who support Arema. So it's like there is no like formal structure of organization, formal leaders, formal hierarchy of structure that established within Aremania, and there is no leaders, formal leaders. However, they know like. We can call it as a regional coordinator or coordinator of wilayah. So it's like, although there is no formal structure within the Aremania, but this association is so decentralized. 
so they know the regional coordinator so this regional coordinator based on like a village or kampong so it's like traditional place so this regional coordinator based on every village based on uh, every uh, kampong in every corner in greater malang so they they will connect with every other regional coordinators to communicate and then to dispute the conflict if there is something happens between them so this regional coordinator also this is the strategy to bring order for the uh, football supporter communities so even though there is no formal structure but the order is exist this regional coordinators mean as a envoy to make situation still um, peace maintain the peace and then uh, solving the conflict among the supporters and then order yeah it is where maybe i feel safe if i uh, live among them uh, in in every matches in, in in some matches in kanjuruan because the the regional coordinator serves as a peace entrepreneur to make their followers keep orderly and then keeping the violence outside from the stadium outside from the field and so on and so forth you mentioned you know certain fixtures like arema persebaya or the uh, Persib Bandung versus Persija Jakarta, uh, you know, could be categorized as high risk. And, you know, by coincidence, Persib and Persija were actually scheduled to, to play on the same weekend as the Kanduruan disaster. And again, there you saw a, a request to move the kickoff rejected by the league, uh, as far as I've seen in media reportage. But I mean, where these fixtures could be considered high risk, how did fan groups perceive matches like that? Did you get a sense in your research that fan groups ever saw it as hazardous to be attending particular matches or, or did you yourself ever feel it was hazardous to go to particular games of football in Malang? If we talk about our, our Rema uh, or our Remania when, when, when they will have a match with Persebaya, so yeah, this situation might be quite heated up a little bit when, when we compare with the other matches because we know the rivalry we know, yeah, this is a long-standing history of rivalry between those uh, clubs. So it must be different. The atmosphere is different. However, the thing that we saw in the two in the second of October calamity is completely different. So yes, I know the rivalry is quite intense, but to see that coming to the stadium can be so fully hazardous, I didn't see that coming. So if, if 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 there was a match uh, between like uh, against Persebaya, so the, the 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 situation can be so intense. But I don't think that the supporters see that matches can fully hazardous to come to the stadium because, you know, on the matches we can see so many people came, so many people, uh, so many supporters came to came to the stadium. So if they perceive that higher risk match can be fully hazardous why so many people so many supporters came to the stadium so i think that it's it's kind of a celebration i don't know it's 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 kind of a, a, a people festival because you know we will against uh, persebaya it's a kind of one of the ultimate rival in in the football so it can be very attractive it can be very uh, entertaining to see those clubs fighting each other in the pitch.
It's an interesting answer of the uh, the the many strands that go into the anticipation and the pre-game atmosphere when you have two local rivals meet. Yeah, before I turn back to Usman, uh, perhaps I could ask you one more thing, particularly as you have researched this intertwining between football and politics, as well as the police actions. You know, there's a, inevitably in the investigations going to be questions around the safety of Kanjuruan Stadium, and presumably it's going to take an investment of a lot of money to make stadiums around Indonesia safer for fans. Does the game have a political standing in Indonesia where we're likely to see that sort of investment to make game day safer? I would like to uh, highlight uh, this one, Dave, uh, because there's a big irony in football ecosystem in Indonesia that football supporters, it's uh, heavily marginalized in the football club decision. So as long the supporter is marginal, so I think that the improvement of the stadium safety is difficult to be happen. Yeah, because the one who will come to the stadium is the supporter, right? And then until today, it's often to see that the supporters association is not involved. They do not have sufficient room or sufficient access to influence the policy within the clubs. So the club just only, you know, uh, when there's kind of investor who came or political leaders who came and then own the clubs. So when they made a direction toward the future of the clubs or every policy, the supporter voice is upset. Taking advantage of you're someone who's watched a number of matches there, how did Kandurun Stadium compare to the stadiums where first division matches were played? Is it a particularly antiquated stadium? Is it, is it a fairly new stadium? Uh, what were facilities like there? Yeah, Kanjuruan Stadium is it's uh, firstly built in 1997, but then officially used as a, a football stadium in 2004. So from the surface, from what I saw, it's a well-polished stadium. It's a big, it's good. If if we compare to the other stadium in Indonesia, Kanjuruan is it's better. Uh, it's com- uh, completely new, quite new, and then have a big park. Yeah, from the common people who do not know exactly, who do not know accurately, deeply about the football security or stadium security regulations. So we do not know that the, the Kajuran stadium it can be very lethal, can be very dangerous for the supporters. Because from the surface, it's good, it's beautiful, it's big. So what I imply is, it needs to have like a spectacle literacy for the uh, football supporters community so they know what a safe means, uh, what kind of stadium uh, that, that's safe for the people. So I think that's the most important thing. I mean, when you speak about spectator literacy, you of course hope that, you know, it's something that someone attending a football match wouldn't have to think about. But yeah, no, uh, I, I imagine the condition of stadiums around Indonesia will be a, a one focus among many in the reviews and investigations that happen after this disaster. And I mean, if I could return to you, Usman, could I ask you more specifically exactly what investigations and accountability mechanisms you think are needed in the wake of this Kanjuran tragedy? And can we expect the government's fact-finding team and the, the police criminal investigations to provide that sort of accountability? I think first and foremost is a human rights-based investigation, a human rights police accountability. You know, 
that is why we call on the government, the authorities, to to have a swift, independent investigation, a thorough investigation into the use of tear gas, especially the use of tear gas at the stadium, and to ensure that those who are found to have committed violations, and especially those, the most responsible ones, are tried in an open court and do not merely you know, receive internal or administrative sanctions. I think the, the type of equipment used to disperse an assembly must be carefully considered. I think the use of TIGAS had to be you know, regularly assessed, regularly being put under review, and it can only be used when necessary, when it is proportional, when it is lawful, in the case of Kanjuruhan, it is not necessary, it is not proportional, and it is against the law. So we, we need a human rights-based investigation, a human rights-based police accountability, where you know we can prevent in the future that any use of tear gas or any use of less little weapons resulted in serious injury or serious deaths. I think the recommendation for uh, the police in particular, police accountability, should be in a number of areas. You know, number one, at least the internal disciplinary system. And the second is criminal offenses. If they are found to be, have been committed in this horrific tragedy, it has to be properly investigated and being taken into a fair and an open court. What we have seen so far, of course, we, we welcome the establishment of the independent fact-finding team. It is not purely independent, actually, because it is led, headed by the minister, uh, although it, it involves uh, a number of external members from non-government people. I think what we have seen so far is weak accountability mechanism. And that is the case for the various levels of police accountability. All are lacking of compliance to the human rights standards, to the human rights legal standards. And that includes a number of factors. Inadequate internal police accountability mechanism, a weak supervision system, an unclear process to lodge a complaint about police misconduct, the failure to prosecute police officers before civilian courts, and other factors could probably be laid in the limited powers of the external oversight bodies, uh, such as National Police Commission. You know, National Police Commission have been perceived to be just amplifying the police in, in many cases, including in the last dirty scandal of the shooting against uh, a junior police, uh, Joshua. But we need an independent police commission. We need a police commission with sufficient power to exercise external oversight mechanisms. So without you know, accountability mechanism, without strong accountability mechanism, I don't think what we have seen in, in Kanjuruhan will be the last uh, incident. Really, the, the police must be close to the least accountable institution in Indonesia. I mean, certainly we've seen several major conflicts precipitated between the Anti-Corruption Commission and the police when the Anti-Corruption Commission has tried to investigate senior police. So when you mention a, a human rights-based investigation, what 
set of people or institutions in Indonesia has the standing to conduct that sort of human rights-based investigation of the police? A human rights commission. The National Human Rights Commission is mandated by the law, both the law on human rights in 1999 and also the law on human rights court in 2000, which gives a strong mandate to the National Human Rights Commission with what we called a pro-justitia investigation. So a pro-justitia investigation is located within a human rights criminal justice system in which the output, the result of a human rights pro-justitia investigation will be taken into the Attorney General Office and should be brought into a human rights court. This is something, you know, that was promising in the beginning of reform, especially under Wahid administration, where we had seen at the time the functioning of human rights system, human rights enforcement system, in which National Human Rights Commission had conducted a, a number of pro-justicia investigation that was taken into uh, a higher up level of investigation led by the Attorney General and taken into a human rights court for crimes against humanity in Istimok, for crimes against humanity in, you know, masculine of Muslims dissenters in 1984 in Tanjung And the same goes for what we are seeing now in ongoing human rights trial in Makassar for the shooting, the unlawful killings against teenagers in Papua, in Paniai. So that is something which I hope to happen. And of course, this requires careful assessment, careful analysis done by National Human Rights Commission to ensure that all evidences, uh, including circumstantial evidences, could be admissible, could be uh, formulated in a way that it is accepted by the Attorney General Office in order for them to be able to, to bring the perpetrators to a human rights court. What we had seen in many cases, you know, we can name a lot of incidents, uh, shooting against students in back in 2019. This is just the last three years, for example, last three, four years. Uh, or the shooting against uh, protesters in the electoral violence in 2019, in May, or the, the shootings of so many civilians in Papua in the last uh, three to four years. It all goes with zero accountability, zero human rights enforcement. And I guess on that point, if the National Commission for Human Rights, Komnas Ham, were to conduct a thoroughgoing investigation of police conduct in this country run disaster, um, do you think they would have the backing of President Jokowi and of the political class more broadly in Indonesia to conduct that investigation of the police? For the president, I don't, I don't have confidence. On, uh, in his annual state address in August, uh, President said that the government must guarantee the fulfillment of civil rights. But look at what happens, you know, nothing changed, nothing changed. I mean, if those are not merely words, the government must now take meaningful and effective steps, you know, to ensure major atrocities, you know, unlawful killings in Papua or shooting against protesters or this horrific tra tragedy in Kanjuruhan are investigated promptly. 
thoroughly, independently, impartially, impunity for these violations must be stopped. I remember back in early August, I was contacted by Minister Mahfoud, coordinating Minister of Legal Security and Politics. He was inviting me to, to join a presidential team to solve past human rights abuses through non-judicial mechanism. I, of course, you know, welcome that invitation. However, if I look at the mandate, if I look at the, the framework of the mandate given to the team, it will go nowhere. It has, from the very early on, reduced the requirements of international human rights standards. For example, if, if he really want to solve past human rights abuses, the victims have at least four types of rights. The rights to justice, the rights to have the perpetrators being taken into legal justice. That is so important. That is gone. That is missing from the, you know, from the presidential decree. And secondly, the rights to truth. The team was not given any mandate or whatsoever that may enable the team to investigate and find the truth. And thirdly, is to provide reparation. Even for the reparation, the, the presidential decree has already reduced the reparation or what we call non-judicial settlement by just giving you know, a mandate of what they call a physical rehabilitation, let alone the other types of rights, the rights of victims to, to, to get a satisfaction or to get a you know, guarantee for non-repetition. So I believe President Widodo enjoy the politicized police, yeah? the weaponization of the police for political purpose, for partisan interests of the government. And, and that's what I have seen in Djokovic's administrations where the police becoming more and more militarized, the, the police becoming more and more institutionalized in a non-police post, in ministries and uh, national bodies, in, you know, in so many civilian posts, which is somehow a reflection of political compromise made by President Widodo with the police. And he also have made unimpressive moves by, you know, appointing implicated generals in the past to major atrocities to a very strategic ministers, a defense minister, the head of presidential advisory council, not to mention several posts, you know, at the level of director general in the Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Politics, Law and Security, or even the chief of territorial command of the military, where it consists of implicated officers, a political kidnapping back in the late 90s, or other major atrocities in the past. So I do have a, a hope that National Human Rights Commission will be able to undertake independent investigation, will be strengthened in terms of power and so on. But I don't, I don't really think that President Widodo has a full support to such bodies such as uh, the National Human Rights Commission, especially when it comes to deal with, you know, solving past atrocities or major atrocities where some of the people in his inner circle might have been implicated by the human rights investigation or human rights prosecution. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, for those families um, who've had people killed or injured or have survived this disaster, uh, what does lie ahead now? Are they likely to receive 
compensation, restitution? Will they have access to justice? What is their experience likely to be in, in the coming weeks, months and years? Well, they should have access to justice. But, you know, what we have seen so far, the witnesses are being intimidated, uh, being arrested uh, or being ill-treated. Um, and there are a number of families and the relatives who had been given a kind of compensation. But those kinds of compensation are very much improper, uh, very much below the standard, you know. You know, 50 million and, and so on. It, it, it is not a proper compensation. If, if they really want to provide fair compensation, it has to be in line with international standards. I think 50 million, even 100 million rupiah. 50 million or 100 million rupiah is about 5,000 or 10,000 Australian dollars. Yeah, or just, just too small, you know. I, I, I don't, I don't mean to say, you know, that the loss of the uh, lives can just be, you know, replaced by money. No, no. I, I think it is part of the victims and their families' uh, rights. Uh, you know, they have the rights to justice and justice in a fullest sense, justice in finding the truths, justice in seeing perpetrators are most responsible for the tragedy being taken into court, justice in the sense that they receive proper reparation. You know, that covers not only material uh, compensation, uh, but also non-material compensation, something moral, something, you know, something that may satisfy the rights of the victims and their relatives, something that can guarantee that it won't, it will never again, it will never ever happen again in the future. Again, I really, you know, express uh, my deepest condolences to the families of the victims. I think no one should lose their lives at a football match. As Yogi mentioned, you know, people, you know, usually hanging there, hang out there, and then, you know, for fun, uh, for, for cheering up uh, families, uh, not for morning sure sure um you know perhaps that's a good point to to draw back in yogi i mean we've heard from usman all of the various obstacles that efforts to establish accountability face you yogi obviously have a, a deep familiarity with the local context in malam how confident are you that we can see a follow-up to this Kanjuran disaster that can guarantee that there won't be a repeat and, and what might be some of the obstacles that we're going to see to that that will need to be overcome for that to happen? Yes, uh, I think the answer is supporters because they one who come to the stadium, right? So they should no longer just as spectators in policy making, but also they must be given a decisive space or position related to the stadium safety. It is the time for, for the football clubs in Indonesia or the uh, Indonesian football ecosystem to improve or give space to or accommodate the representation of supporters to sit in the decision-making rooms in terms of the football system in Indonesia or to make the direction toward the age of football clubs in Indonesia. So they should no longer become the spectators, right? So they should can be involved and then they should have influence to join 
together with the other actors to uh, influence the policy making because i think one of the thing why why the calamity in kanjuruhan uh, the tragic calamity was happens because there is a disconnect between the supporters and regulators and the football clubs because if there is kind of connection a strong connection between the supporters between the supporters interests between the uh, regulators and clubs the calamity can be avoided because uh, the, the official of the match because of the club official will be very aware with the situation the, the experience by the supporters in the stadium so i think if there is no connection a good connection between supporters and the clubs it will be very difficult to achieve a significant improvement toward the football world in indonesia you know a, a lot to work on there in the future both on accountability and on better incorporation as, as you mentioned there are the voice of supporters yogi um there's a lot more I could ask you both, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us today to discuss this country run disaster and uh, and what needs to be done in its aftermath. Thank you. Thank you, Dave, for having me. Thank you, Thank you so Yogi. Yep. That was Usman Hamid, Executive Director of Amnesty International Indonesia, and Yogi Setia Pamana, PhD candidate at KITLV in the Netherlands and author of a 2017 study on football fans and politics in Malam. Talking Indonesia returns on 27 October with a special 200th episode. We're inviting all listeners to send in a short audio message to talkingindonesiapodcast at gmail.com to be featured in that episode. Keep in mind that we may edit your message to help us fit it in. In the meantime, you can find the entire archive of Talk Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talk Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.